Well, good morning, Grace. Glad you're here today. One of my favorite cartoons growing up, and I think the reason for it is because it tapped into something kind of deep inside my humanity. There's this deep desire within us, I think, to see um, the good guys win and the bad guys lose. It, it just resonates with us, right? There's something deep inside of us that loves when someone gets what's coming to them, especially if they walk into a trap of their own making. I mean, this is why I love Scooby-Doo, okay? <laughs> now, maybe yours isn't Scooby-Doo. Your generation may be the Columbo kind of classic gotcha trap moments from long ago or Law and Order or any number of the 48 different shows that are like this. But the reason, right, in all genuineness and seriousness here, I'm not, I'm not kidding, okay? The reason, the beauty of Scooby-Doo is that every episode ended with the good guys catching the bad guys, the mystery being solved, and justice being served. It resonates with us. And almost every Scooby-Doo episode ended with uh, this quote. You can play along if you want. And I would have gotten... I would have got. That was the audience participation part of this, guys. Come on. All right. I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't... You don't have to read the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you pesky or meddling kids. I would have gotten away with it. Well, today in the study of the life of David that we're continuing, where we left off last week, justice hasn't been done. And the good guy actually became the bad guy. And David is now the kind of king that he was supposed to be the answer to. He's become Saul. He's actually become worse. And it's looking like he's going to get away with it. And we have to deal with what Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann calls the painful truth of this man. Most scholars are going to believe that at the moment where Nathan comes to David, it had been about a year since that first moment where David decided not to go off to war and the dominoes began to fall in his life. And David himself may be wondering, am I going to get away with this? Is this going to blow over? Am I, is this just going to go away? But by the, time, by the end of our time today, I don't think David's going to be saying, I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling Nathan. Instead, David, by the end, of, the end of chapter 12, might be saying something like this. I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for God's grace. I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for God's grace. Today, we're going to look at the grace of not getting away with it. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going to be in the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 12 this morning. Where we left off, if you'll recall, the last verse of chapter 11 says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Some translations say it was evil in God's eyes. Yahweh's looking on this, and although it may be common in that day and age for kings to act like this, or it may be okay in his culture and day, Yahweh says, no, 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 I'm looking, and I have different standards for my king. And I think what we can learn from David and what I'm hoping to show you today is whether you've ever gone as far as David or you've gone further, all right, I want to show you what I see is in 2 Samuel 12, four clear demonstrations of God's grace to David. Four clear demonstrations of God's grace to David, and it's a scandalous grace. It's a shock our senses kind of grace, and it does not seem fair. And I want you to see also David's response because it's the only good and proper response to this kind of grace. And then finally, I want us to ask the question, could God do this for me? 
And if he would do this for me, what are the heart conditions that God bestows this kind of lavish and scandalous grace upon? So let's take a look at the first half of chapter 12 today. And again, four clear demonstrations of God's grace. Here we go. The first of these acts or this gifts of God of grace is that God sent. He acted. God sent. He acted. Last week we saw, if you were here with Pastor Matt, the importance of this word sent in chapter 11. A dozen times, David sending, Bathsheba sending, Joab sending. Right? David, you've been doing all this chapter 11 sending, and now it's Yahweh's turn to send. It's Yahweh's turn to act. There's something that needs to be addressed because you have now given the enemies of the Lord some bulletin board material. And I need to respond to this. And so the very first verse of this chapter, the author wants you to see loud and clear, right out of the gate, who's behind the scenes, who's doing this, who's orchestrating this entire confrontation. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, I love that he sent a man named Nathan. One of the things I know, because my son's name is Nathan, and the reason we gave him that name is because that Hebrew word literally means he gave, or God's gift. The Bible is literally saying, the Lord sent a gift to David. The Lord sent a gift to David. And it's not going to feel like a gift right away. But without these words, I think we're in for a much bleaker story. We have to remember that that Yahweh is not some kind of passive onlooker here, just standing by. I think the big takeaway from this first verse is that we need to remember that God did not leave David alone. He loves him enough to act, to send, while David is hiding, ignoring Maybe acting as if nothing happened or hoping it just all blows over. God says, no, no king of mine can live this way. I love you too much to passively watch this happen. And friends, there are some really scary, frankly scary verses in the Bible that explain kind of the opposite side of this thing. If you remember Romans 128 says he gave them over to their sinful desires. He, God literally stepped back and said, okay, have what you want. Or Hebrews 12, where the Lord talks about he disciplines those he loves, and his, his discipline is the love. And that those without, without discipline, in other words, those he doesn't act upon or send to, are illegitimate children. And so this upcoming confrontation to David, it's not his punishment. His punishment would have been to be left alone. No, this sending, this upcoming pain even, it's a gift from God through a man literally named God's gift. This is the graciousness of God pursuing David in his sin. I love you too much. I won't allow you to stay in this condition the rest of your life. And so Yahweh comes after him. Yahweh sends. Yahweh acts. Now Nathan is going to need to do his kind of prophetical duty, and it's a dangerous task he's been given, because as you know, we've already seen what David does to people who try to expose his guilt. He's willing to murder, to have this thing continue to be hidden. And so Nathan tells him a story, and this is where we see, I think, the second grace or the second gift that God gives David. He gives him a message David could hear. He gives David a message he could really hear. 
Nathan's parable is going to be like a surgeon's scalpel, very precise, getting right to the infected area. Nathan knew that a full-on frontal assault here is probably not going to work. It's probably going to be met with justification or defensiveness. And so instead of sitting David down and calling him a filthy womanizer and a cruel murderer, he says, sir, could I tell you a story? Could I tell you a story? And and Nathan knows exactly this man's upbringing. He knows his uh, family life. He knows his uh, story of his life. And he knows this man's love for sheep and shepherding. And the beauty of this story is that Nath, or David Nath, genuinely believes that this is a real story. One of the things prophets did from time to time was they would come to the king and get a kingly ruling about some issue that's happening in the people. And so this story even fits within the natural scope of David and Nathan's relationship. It's so, so subtle and so brilliant. And the story goes like this. Verse 1, there, was a, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children, and he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb instead and prepared it for the man who had come for him. Friends, this is a master class in storytelling and double meaning. Let me just give you a a couple of clues. The clues are literally screaming out at David, and he doesn't see it. David was poor. Now David's rich. He should have remembered what that was like. This unique phrase of lie in his arms, that's a very popular way in the Old Testament of, of describing a man's embrace of his wife. The Hebrew word for daughter is bat, it was like a bot to him, as in bot Sheba. Nathan speaks directly to this man's heart, this former shepherd with a message that he could clearly hear about a great imbalance of power, about greed and injustice done with the clues hidden in plain sight. And David takes the bait and walks into the trap. And we see his response in verses 5 and 6. It says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said this to Nathan, As the Lord lives, or I swear to God, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. I love that Nathan brings David to a point where he's making this kingly judgment that this person is worthy of the highest penalty. Okay? He goes even beyond what the, the law said, which was the, the repay fourfold thing that he mentioned as well. No, no, no. This man deserves to die. David is so self-deceived for so long and so blinded in this season of life that he didn't even understand he's pronouncing judgment on himself. And in his anger, he's kind of, I think, expressing some of his own pent-up, kind of repressed anger and anxiety on himself. And he needed someone to help him see what was really happening here. He needed a story or a message that he could hear and understand. Right, Nathan's story, it did what great stories do. It took David out of himself, and it gave him an emotional attachment to what was right and good and true. Nathan did, or Nathan did not tell David anything that he didn't already know. 
David knows what he's done is wrong, but he had built off this kind of little walled-off world of self-justification and self-protection and self-indulgence that made it impossible for him to get to this point. And Nathan's story leads David out of that little world, and it lets him look at what's happening from an outside view. Alexander White, an Old Testament commentator, said it like this. It says, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David knew that Nathan even had a sword. This is God's grace to him, friends. A message, a story that he could, that he could hear. And it brings David to a place where he's saying, who is this guy? I mean, let's get him. Bring this man to me. A kind of man who can live like this does not deserve to live. David is literally saying Israel would be better off without this man walking the earth. And then four words change a man's life. Four words after a well-told, to-the-point story that he could hear and understand. And Nathan leans in and says to David, I need to tell you something. You're the man. You're the man. One of the most dramatic sentences, I think, maybe in the entire Old Testament, Nathan putting his life on the line. He can easily become one of David's next victims. And I think we see the next gift that God gave David. He gives him the grace of clear conviction. The grace of clear conviction. He gives him clarity. You are the man. This is you, David. And in this moment, David now knows exactly where he stands. There's no ambiguity, no gray area. Nathan makes the identification and the connection, and that's all he needed to do. And David now knows that his, his actions don't line up with his judgments, and he can clearly see where he stands. And that's enough, but Nathan presses in even further. He wants him to give even more clarity. He wants him to understand even more of what's happening here. And so he continues in verse 7. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why? Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? Nathan's bringing even more clarity here. Let me tell you what really happened here, David, so you don't misunderstand. And I love how Nathan takes him on a remembrance journey, right? A reminder of God's goodness to him in the past. I gave you all these things. I was so good to you. And if you needed more, you just had to ask. Instead, you despised. And that word there, despise, literally means to show contempt or disgust or scorn or to think lightly of. David, you treated God's generosity and goodness to you with contempt. You treated God's word as if it didn't matter. You despise the word of the Lord. And I think there's so much grace here, so much clarity for David. Of all the things that he could have accused him of, it wasn't the adultery, it wasn't the murder, was it the manipulation and the scheming of the situation? He confronts him with the shock and the horror of despising God. You've treated me so carelessly with such little respect. And I wish I didn't know how this felt. I have done this too much in my life. 
You despised me. And that's an even more heinous act than what you did with Bathsheba and Uriah. What you did was horrible, but it started with a more horrible thing. You were loose with my commands. Such little concern for my word and my instructions. So little gratitude for what's been done to you. And David, no ambiguity, right? David gets clarity from God. He gets the grace of clear conviction and knowing exactly where he stands. And it's not a fun place to be. And then we come to the final grace. The final gift that God gives David. And it's a shocking one. David receives the grace of not getting what you deserve. He gets the grace of not getting what you deserve. But I want to be very clear here. Okay? As I read this passage and I read the rest of the Bible... I believe that he only receives this last grace because of how he responds in this moment. It's his response that earns him this, not earns him, that's a bad word because it's grace, right? It's this last, it's this response that allows the door to open up to this grace. He would have gotten the other three no matter what, right? I think he would have gotten um, God sending and acting to him. He might have gotten a story or a message he could hear. He might have even gotten clear, no ambiguity conviction, But it's this last one that's conditional. And we know this because of how David responds. It says in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. He takes full responsibility in this moment. There's no denial of Nathan's accusation. There's no explaining it away. He owns it. And David instantly confesses to Nathan. And this is where we see the great contrast of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. In these books, we're supposed to see the contrast between two different kinds of kings and what kind of king Israel really needs. And if you remember, Saul is, every time he's confronted, it is explanation, rationalization, let me tell you why I did what I did. And instead, David is now back in his rightful spot as the anti-Saul. No no rationalization, no explanation. I have sinned against the Lord. And I'm worthy, I'm deserving of all that judgment I just said a few minutes ago. And then in a shocking moment, I think, to our original readers, the words back to David via God are this. And David said to Nathan, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And he gets the grace of not getting what he deserves. But the verse continues, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. We also need to see this important and sobering truth that David does not get what he deserves, but he does live with some pretty heavy consequences for the rest of his life. The pain of reaping is always greater than the pleasure of sowing. And David is going to reap some things in his life that he has sown. And the rest of the book of 2 Samuel is just an unraveling of David's life and family. David's life is never the same from that one moment where he should have gone off to war and he didn't go off to war. And we're going to see his sons live out generational sin and there's going to be turmoil and there's all these consequences for the decisions that he's made. He will not die, but he will live with this for the rest of his life. But, 
because of how you've responded, David. The Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. Now, these two statements by these two men, I have sinned against the Lord, and the Lord has taken away your sin. That's all we're given here this conversation. I wish there was like an extended director's cut. Okay, so we could get in here and find out what, what, what else. I need more than this. I need to understand what's happening here. And luckily for us, the director's cut is in a different spot in the Bible. It's in uh, David's prayer journal, actually. It's called the Psalms. And Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are kind of the great elaboration of those two phrases. I have sinned against the Lord, and the Lord has taken away your sin. If I could take a moment, I'd love to just summarize these two psalms for you. I want to encourage you this week. I think it would be wise of you to read these two psalms. I think it would be good for your soul in your devotional time. But let me just go through them really quickly. Psalm 32, we see three things. We see the pain of ignoring sin. David says, I'm wasting away. There's the heavy hand of God is on me. I'm literally killing myself from the inside out because of this duplicitous life that I'm living. And then he continues, and he, he talks about how he, he's coming to grips with what I call the unholy trinity of sin and brokenness. He's like, no, I've transgressed. I've stepped over the boundaries that I was supposed to step over. I've sinned. I've missed the mark. I keep missing the mark and coming up short. And my life is full of iniquity. There's an inward and moral corruption in me that I cannot shake. But he says, no, there's a more blessed way to live in Psalm 32, and that's to acknowledge and to confess and to find forgiveness. And then in Psalm 51, he pleads with God, have mercy on me, God, oh, have mercy on me. He rightfully says, you're, you're right to do whatever you want with me, and you'll be right in your judgments, and I'm asking you for mercy. And then he confesses the seriousness of his sin. He knows the weight of it. He knows, look, there's, there's everything that's wrong in this relationship is on my side of the equation. And he prays for cleansing. He says, wash me. Wash me, clean me. I need, I need to be made whiter than snow. I love that phrase, whiter than snow, because I grew up in the south and mainly Texas, and I don't get whiter than snow very often. But we did get it. Remember that snowvid time? That thing that happened after COVID that like locked us in and we all lost power and some of us still have the shakes because of it? An hour before we lost power at our house, I walked out. It was about 6.30 that morning, and this is what I walked out to. Wash me. Wash me. Make me whiter than snow. I need to be that clean like snow when it's first fallen. And he asked for renewal, and he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right steadfast spirit within me, and restore to me the joy of my salvation. And when you do that, God, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to teach others, and I'm going to praise you the rest of my life. And the thing I'm going to teach them is the thing that I've learned during this whole season of life, that what you're after, what you want from people, the thing that God never despises is a broken and contrite heart, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That kind of spirit is always welcome in the Father's presence. Oh, we could have gone so much deeper, friends. Man, those are good psalms. Read them this week. Now, in our last moments together this morning, I think we need to do the question we need to always do when we were digging into the Word of God, and that's to ask, okay, because of these truths, what are the right next action steps for me? How do I need to apply this in my life?
And as I've prayed and studied for our time today, there were three kind of applications that I think came to mind. I know that there's probably things the Holy Spirit's doing in your heart right now that you might need to apply, and I encourage you to consider those and to, to act on those promptings. But here's three to get you started. The first is to be a Nathan and get some Nathans in your life. Be a Nathan and get some Nathans in your life. Do you have the kind of people in your life who could say, you are the man or you are the woman? I don't think David ever would have been able to see what was really going on without, without Nathan's help. Nathan is the perfect example of Proverbs 27, 6, where it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We need spiritual friendship. We need these interconnected, intentional, spiritual friendships that push us towards obedience and faithfulness to God. And if you don't have those, it's one of the beauties of being in a church, honestly, is that we might, we might have some of these kinds of relationships in our life. But you need to get some Nathans in your life, and you need to be Nathans for other people. you got to be willing sometimes to tell someone the truth in a gentle way, maybe in a way that they could hear. And you got to listen when someone comes to you. Especially if it's the kind of person that's demonstrated themselves faithful and loving to you over the years. We don't need more yes men. We need more Nathans. Now, word of warning here, okay? If what happened for you just now was you thought of the 14 people you need to confront on their sin, okay? Pump the brakes a little bit. Jesus would say pump the brakes a little bit. He says, hey, you might want to check the log in your own eye before you go after the speck in your brother's eye. That should be done with much prayer. It should be done with much gentleness, right? More often than not, we need Nathans coming to us. But we need godly friends, people who would be willing to risk relationship for the chance that a brother or sister in Christ might listen, that they might course correct, that they might be free and forgiven and restored to right relationship with God. And if someone comes to you, listen. Listen. The second application I'd like us to consider today is I'd love it if everybody, maybe sometime this week, this is what I'm going to be doing this week as well, is asking myself in a quiet moment with the Lord this week, are you wasting away? Are you wasting away? Is there something in your life that is so spiritually heavy that it's destroying you from the inside out? David describes it like this in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Throw my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Friends, are you wasting away? Is your body and soul literally crying out? Your strength is dried up and you're feeling the right and true and real heavy hand of God. And if, if that's you, I'm pleading with you to see that as God's gift to you today. That that heavy hand of God is God's grace to you today. That he doesn't want you to live like this anymore. You haven't yet done that killing of sin and it's killing you and you're wasting away. And then I think the final application for us today, the third thing you might consider is to own it, confess, and repent. This is the response of David. 
This is how he acts in the moment of confrontation by God's grace. And this word confession in the Bible literally means to agree with God about it. Friend, the gateway to the grace of not getting what you deserve is confession and repentance. It's not found any other way. And so I, I just believe that the Lord's doing work in someone's heart today. And so I would ask you, if you're feeling that prick of conscience in your soul, don't ignore it, friends. Don't waste another hour or another decade wasting away. Whatever it is, bring it to the light. I love how in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, you get this feel that David was not just concerned about the results of his sin. He's more concerned about the loss of relationship and closeness and intimacy with God because of it. He knows he was committing spiritual adultery and murder of his own soul long before he created, he, he was doing physical adultery and murder. That was the problem that was underneath all of the other problems. And friends, repentance is hard. And it's because our pride, it's so much easier to be proud. One of the things that I've seen just over 20 or so years of ministry is, is you try to help people work through the things that are keeping them down in their lives and even my own stuff. I've seen, it, I've seen this play out in my own life too, too many times. Is that you can usually tell that someone's on the right track when they stop spending so much time or most of their conversation trying to get you to understand the why and the how of their sin. Right? You're not there yet if you're still blame casting or looking for an empathetic appeal. You're not quite yet seeing yourself as the man or the woman. There's not a full brokenness and contrite heart. There's still this air of explanation and rationalization and justifications. And friends, that's not the path. That's not what we see from David here. When you do that, you're acting more like Saul than you are David. And I know this game too well. Because I've played it too often. And you always lose. You always lose. Friends, I have good news. This is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. The message of Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, that every sinner who comes to God with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, anyone who'd be willing to acknowledge the weight and the cost of their sin can also boldly claim the promises of God's grace bought for us by the blood of Jesus Christ and find forgiveness and find freedom and that there's no sin so far. And if that confession is genuine, and that person approaches God with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, they too can hear the words that Nathan spoke to David. The Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord has taken away your sin. Now, you may still live with some of the consequences of that sin, but consequences with a right and restored relationship with God is always better than wasting away. It's always better than wasting away. The two big themes in my life, I'll proclaim them until the day the Lord takes me home, is my great sin and the Lord's greater grace. That's what we see in David's story. So friends, own it, repent, confess. This is the way to freedom. Don't despise the word of the Lord any longer. Don't continue to live in such extreme ingratitude. And learn to throw yourself on the mercy and the grace of God. David might say this. 
I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for God's grace. I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for God's grace. Not sure what you might be getting away with right now. Maybe that thing you don't want anybody to know. I hope, I hope that the Lord would be as gracious and generous to you as he was to David. And that you would see the four graces that, that David saw. That you would see that God sent. He is acting. He is pursuing me. He is not leaving me to my own devices. He loves me. I'm a legitimate child. And that you'd see, you'd get the, the grace of a message that you could hear. That somehow the Lord would figure out the right combination of things that might pierce your hardness of heart and your deceitfulness of sin. So you might be able to hear what you need to hear and your brokenness and your defenses might come down. And it might lead you to the grace of clear conviction. That you'd get clarity. That you'd have your own kind of you are the man or you are the woman moments. And it might shock a reality, yes, but it would be very clear. You know, a disciple of Jesus can't live this way. And I'm praying that you would respond and I would respond like David did. That we'd go on our own kind of Psalm 32 and 51 journey and that we'd find the conditions to this final grace is total ownership, knowledge of self, a broken and contrite spirit that throws yourself on the mercy of God and boldly claim those promises so that you'd hear back this final grace. You're not going to get what you deserve. You're not going to get what you deserve. Your sin is taken away by the blood of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings from David's line. If you confess your sin and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you too can be saved. Your eternal sentence can be ripped up. And you might find freedom from those crimes against God and others and freedom to live that way no longer. Friends, you have been offered so much grace. David offered a scandalous amount of grace. And it's available to you too. Don't treat it with contempt. Don't despise the word of the Lord today. Confess, repent, be free, and worship a God that doesn't give us what we deserve. All week long, I've been feeling like the Lord's asking me to do something a little out of the ordinary, and I'm on a journey to try to say yes to these things instead of no. And so what I want to do is I, want to, I just want to stop and give us a moment here as a church. I want to give you a moment between just you and God. I know this is a little out of the ordinary here at Grace. I know we don't do this sort of thing very often. I'm not trying to be weird or overly forceful here. I really am not. But I just think we should take a short amount of time before we dismiss because I just know there's too many people in this room. Someone is, someone is dealing with something. Someone needs to talk to the Lord about something. And so I want to give you a moment to listen to God. I want to give you a moment to talk to him about what you need to talk to him about wherever you are right now. So sometimes here at Grace, we pray with our palms up. We want to signify that, you know, I'm open-handed towards you, God. You could do that if you want. But if there's something that you need to talk to God about, I want you to have a chance to do that now. I want you to have a chance to maybe confess, repent for the first time. If there's nothing that comes to your mind right now, you don't have to force it. Maybe you could just spend a moment expressing your gratitude to God for his faithfulness to you. But let's take a moment, maybe 45 seconds, maybe 60 seconds, and then I'll pray for us to close. Let's take a moment, just you and God real quick.
Let me close this in prayer. Have mercy on us, O oh God. According to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy, would you treat us graciously? God, help us to be, to see you, see how good and gracious you have been and you continue to be to the men and women in this room. God, we know who we are. We know how much we lack and how much work you still have left to do in us. And God, we marvel today at your too-good-to-be-true grace that you offer to us through your son, Jesus Christ. God, help us in this moment to run to you and not from you. Would you create in us, God, a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us and restore to us the joy of our salvation and uphold us with your powerful spirit. We come to you, God. We, we come, we run to you with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, and we know that you'll always accept us in that condition. You always will if we come that way. God, we, we confess that we provide all the sin and you provide all the grace, and our hearts are overflowing with good and natural and right worship of you. And we ask these things humbly and yet boldly in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.